Our great God and Father in heaven, we're thankful to you that we can gather this evening and as brothers and sisters call upon your name. We are thankful that we have a mediator who stands between us and you, O God, even our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful for your Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, whom you have sent forth, pouring out your Spirit upon all flesh, that he might pour out your love within our hearts. And we're thankful for that grace that makes us bold, even as we are humbled before your holy presence. We are thankful that Christ is our King, Creator, and Lord, and that He rules over a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that is everlasting, that will outlast and overcome all of the kingdoms of men and of this present age. And we pray, O Lord, that more and more every day as we live, we would see that we are members of that same kingdom. And that we would know, O God, that there our hope, our peace, and our true and everlasting joy is found. We're thankful, O God, for the prayers that you have answered even over the last several days. We're thankful for your providence and your kindness. We're thankful for your blessing to covenant families. We're grateful, O God, for those whom you have sustained and are continuing to sustain in grief. We're thankful, O Lord, for those that you have preserved in injuries and illness. We're thankful for the clarity and confidence that you have given to those seeking direction and and endeavoring to make good decisions. We're thankful, O Lord, for doors of opportunities that you have opened. We're grateful, O God, that we can be together this night and that we can lift our voices in prayer and know that you do hear us. And we are comforted and encouraged, O God, as we know that the throne room of heaven is open to us as your children. We do pray, O God, your blessings upon the nation in which we live, that you would grant repentance and revival to this land, that you would prolong our freedoms, O Lord, that you would grant us a sufficient measure of prosperity, and that you would raise up God-fearing men as magistrates in this nation. We pray for your church, O God, that you would make her to be the beautiful, faithful, and fruitful bride that she is by your decree and by the righteousness of Christ imputed to her. We pray, O God, that the church would grow more and more in number and in holiness, in faith and in understanding of the faith once for all revealed to the saints. And we pray, O God, for this local congregation, that we too would be faithful and fruitful, a bright and shining light, a powerful voice and witness of your Son and His authority and power that would stand and sound forth even unto the days of our children's children's children. We do pray, O God, your continued blessing upon those who are in need, that you would help those who are sick and grant them healing according to your will, that you would grant relief to those in pain, that you would continue to sustain those who are depressed and discouraged. And we ask your blessing tonight as we open your word, that your spirit would open wide our eyes and our hearts to receive your word, even as a book of consolation to us, that we would know your promises, that we would delight in your truth, and in your glory made known in the promises of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to open your Bibles in the Old Testament to the book of Jeremiah, we are beginning a new section of that book this evening as we take up chapters 30 through 33, not all of which we will get through tonight, obviously. I've done something a little bit different with the study guide for this section, and you can tell me if you like it or don't. Uh, instead of giving you a section-by-section outline of these four chapters, 
I've instead tried to give you an introduction, kind of a big picture uh, approach to the text so that you can understand it as you read, and then hit several important highlights, characteristics that are revealed in these chapters of the restored saints uh, whom God is speaking about in these, uh, in these passages. This section really is, in many ways, the theological high point of the book of Jeremiah. And that's saying something because Jeremiah has a lot of high peaks. There's a lot of great, grand material that is to be found in the pages of this book. But these chapters are especially precious to us because whereas Jeremiah's message and ministry is primarily one of judgment and doom and disaster that is imminently before the people of God, these chapters are, in many ways, a, a word of comfort a ray of hope piercing the darkness. This is often called the book of consolation because in these four chapters, the Lord speaks in considerable detail about the restoration that he promises to bring to the people in the Messianic age. And we've said many times before, not only in Jeremiah, but in studying other books of Old Testament prophecy, the restoration that God promises to Israel and Judah is not primarily a restoration of the political commonwealth. It's not primarily a return to the land, the promised land that God originally promised to Abraham and then gave to the people in the days of Joshua. Now, you will see language about the restoration of the political commonwealth. You will see language especially about the return to the land. But you want to understand that the New Testament interprets these promises. We Uh, interpret Scripture in reference to Scripture. We let the Bible tell us what it means. And the apostles in the New Testament spend considerable time dealing with these kinds of promises and prophecies and making clear to us that the restoration that is anticipated here is the restoration of the church. It's the restoration of the Israel of God, the bringing back of the scattered people of God under the Lordship of Christ, bringing salvation to them through the work of God's Lamb. And so why are there all of these promises about going back to the land? I mean, many times, Christians today, especially in America, they think that the reconstitution of the state of Israel in 1948 serves as kind of a starting point for the prophetic stopwatch, as it were. Here is a key moment in history that uh, anticipates the fulfillment of some of these promises. And the rest of us would say, no, those promises were fulfilled and began to be fulfilled uh, 2,000 years ago in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are continuing to be fulfilled, and they will consummately be fulfilled, uh, but, but it's not looking at the political institution of Israel, but rather the spiritual institution of Israel as the people of God. Why then all of this language about the land is because the land is a type. This is typological language that uses the land of Israel, the promised land of the Old Testament, the homeland of the Jewish people, as a type, as a sign pointing to something greater. Because when you come into the New Testament, what do you see? You see Jesus and the apostles talking about the meek inheriting the earth. Not just the land of promise, but all of the land, all of the lands everywhere. As Paul will say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, everything is yours. In Christ, you get 
all of it. It's not just this strip of land on the Mediterranean coast. You get everything because the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The land of promise was a down payment, as it were. And you're familiar with that language from the New Testament, where the Holy Spirit is a down payment of the eternal communion that we will have with the triune God in glory. And in a similar way, God gives the people the land as a down payment of the fullness of the salvation that would one day come to the people of God. You can think about the garden in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 in relation to the rest of the world, and then look at the promised land given to Israel in relation to the rest of the world and see the gradual expansion of this type of this kingdom that eventually will fill the entire world as Daniel sees in in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which he interprets in Daniel chapter 2. Remember, there was a stone cut out without hands that grows into a mountain, and the mountain then grows to fill the entire earth. Well, that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the garden is a small part of a much larger world. You're seeing the land of promise, a land that flows with milk and honey, is a small part of a much larger world. You get to the New Testament, what does Jesus do? He sends out his apostles. He says, you're going to preach in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. What is happening? You're seeing the leaven placed in the lump of dough and gradually working itself out to the edges. That stone, that mustard seed, is growing into something magnificent. And so when you're reading all of these promises about the land, don't don't get confused about what we're thinking about here. And by the way, maybe we should say, uh, some, sometimes people, when they're interpreting the Bible typologically, they will just almost kind of empty these symbols of any significance whatsoever. They'll say, well, it's, it's just typological, and by that, it almost seems to mean nothing. No, we, we mean something not just ethereal, not just conceptual, but very robust, very material. Christ gets it all. He doesn't just get the spiritual part of the present world. He gets everything. He's Lord of all, and the church inherits all things in him. So let's start by reading Jeremiah chapter 30. Again, we're not going to try and read all four chapters tonight. That would take most of our time. Uh, what I do want is to, to read through portions of this and then introduce kind of the section as a whole so that you can appreciate it as you go home and continue to read it in between our weekly studies. But we'll begin with chapter 30. Hear now God's word. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Thus speaks Yahweh, God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah, says Yahweh. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words that Yahweh spoke concerning Israel and Judah. For thus says Yahweh, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says Yahweh of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. 
Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says Yahweh, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says Yahweh, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. For thus says Yahweh, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable. Because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased, I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. And all who make prey upon you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you. And heal you of your wounds, says Yahweh, because they called you an outcast, saying, This is Zion, no one seeks her. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound, and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them, and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governors shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says Yahweh? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of Yahweh goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of Yahweh will not return until he has done it, and until he has performed the intents of his heart in the latter days you will consider it. And of course, that expression, latter days, should be familiar to you from studying other books of prophecy, like the prophet Joel, but even more from studying the New Testament, where you see that very language in the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, who speak of this present time that we're living in right now between the two advents of Christ as the latter days, as the last days. It will come to pass in these last days that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your uh, uh, daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and visions and all of these things. That prophecy from Joel chapter 2, Peter says on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, is being fulfilled right now. We are in the latter days. And it's in the latter days that all of these things that the Lord is speaking about in chapter 30 and the following chapters will ultimately be fulfilled. Now we go back to the beginning of the chapter and I want to just point out a couple of things. One is the explicitly scriptural nature of Jeremiah's ministry. You know, we have so many prophets in the Old Testament Uh, who, as far as we know, never wrote anything down, or at least not anything that was inspired by God and intended to be preserved in the canon of Scripture. Otherwise, we would have it. Men like Micaiah, uh, prophets like Elijah and Elisha. Uh, We probably have some of the writings of the prophet Samuel because he probably contributed some of the Old Testament literature or contributed to it in some way. But we don't have any book of Samuel that is just a collection of his prophecies the way that we do with regard to the major prophets. 
And yet here, verse 2, the Lord tells Jeremiah specifically, write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. He wants these words to be recorded. He wants these prophecies to be written down. And not just all of the negative prophecies, not just all of the prophecies of judgment that we've seen already had been recorded, but these words of consolation. And I believe he's referring to this entire section of chapters 30 to 33 as we have it now. This would be almost its own pamphlet, right? Its own book, its own monograph of hope that would ultimately be collected with the rest of Jeremiah's writings. Now, how does the Lord describe the suffering that is before Israel and Judah that really, in many ways, has already begun? Because Israel, of course, in 722 BC had been destroyed by the Assyrians. By the time this is revealed to Jeremiah, multiple waves of captives have been taken away from Judah by the Babylonians, and the destruction of the city is imminent. And yet the Lord describes all of this like a woman in labor. This is clearly an outdated prophecy because we have it on good authority now that men get pregnant too, right? <laughs> Hear that almost every day in the main, mainstream media. So we'll have to, have to update Jeremiah's prophecy a bit, I suppose. No, we'll, we'll just update the media, rather, uh, to conform with Scripture. Verse 6, when is a man ever in labor with a child? Never. It never. <laughs> Doesn't happen. Sorry, right? <laughs> Spoiler alert, right? Um, men don't get pregnant. And therefore, men don't have children, right? They don't go through labor pains. And yet Jeremiah says, or the Lord says through Jeremiah, I, I, I see all of the men as if they're about to give birth. Right? <laughs> they're, they're holding their belly and they're, and they're grimacing and they're pale and, and they're going through the pains of judgment. And yet, what if you could see God's chastisement as that? Rather than as utter destruction, as fatherly discipline that is a proof of legitimacy and a proof of divine love. That's what the Hebrews writer calls it, right? That if you are without discipline, then you're not a, a legitimate son. It's the legitimate sons that the father loves and disciplines. What if we could see this judgment as a type of chastisement that was ultimately going to give birth to greater blessing? Well, it's hard to see it that way when the suffering is as great as it is. And this is something that Calvin deals with in his commentary, by the way, just uh, you know, if, if you're interested in reading Calvin's thoughts on it, it's a fairly extensive section. But, but one of the things that Calvin deals with is the fact that in the book of Jeremiah, we have some sections where the judgment sounds as if it is absolute, as if it is final, as if it is annihilation. And then we have passages like this one in Jeremiah that say, no, I will not make a complete and utter end of you. I will, I will only chastise you in order to do you good. How are we to reconcile these prophecies? Well, Calvin points out rightly that for the evildoer... In the midst of Israel, for the unbelieving reprobate who nevertheless was born into the family of Israel, that judgment will be final. It will annihilate him. It will be a purging and a consuming fire, as it were. And yet, for the elect people of God, for the remnant of grace, this is only going to be a type of chastisement. That means that the same events... The same suffering can be experienced by two different people and have two different effects in their lives. The thorn in the flesh can be given to torment and ultimately destroy the unbeliever while the same thorn in the flesh is used to humble and sanctify the child of God. What, what Jeremiah is going to help us do in this section, I think, is kind of reset our perspective on suffering which we've talked about already in some earlier sections of the book, but we'll see even more clearly here in some parts of the book of Consolation. If we could see the suffering that we are experiencing right now 
as a type of labor pain that is going to give birth to greater joy, it would change dramatically the way that we experience it, right? We know that that labor is going to be hard. It's going to be arduous. The the suffering is going to be intense, but we also know that it's going to be temporary, right? It may feel as if it's never going to be over in the moment, but but we know objectively that's not true. It's, It's only temporary, and it is bringing into our lives a much greater joy, a much greater blessing that will so fully eclipse this suffering that we are not going to say, I wish I'd never gotten pregnant at all. We're going to say, I don't even remember the pain for the sake of the joy that this child now is to me. Well, the Lord describes the suffering of his people in particular, in historical reference, the suffering that is before Judah right now. But more broadly, how does Jesus speak about this in the New Testament, in the Gospels? How does Paul talk about this when he says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that awaits. The contrast is so great that these two things belong in different categories. They, they do not warrant comparison. Comparison is inadequate. He'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, that the, the momentary light affliction that we experience here and now is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I love that passage because he takes every description of our affliction and then he chooses uh, the opposite, an antonym for it, right? The momentary versus eternal. Light versus weighty, suffering versus glory, right? In other words, the glory that comes to us eclipses everything that we suffered before. Uh, and, And yet the suffering is the means by which that glory ultimately comes. And so this is the way that God's people who are faithful, God's people who are believers... See, we maybe we think, if I'm faithful, I won't have to go through the judgment. I won't have to go through that suffering. If I'm faithful, then I will be spared and will see God's love in the fact that I don't have to go through pain. I don't have to go through exile. But that wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. When God destroyed the kingdom of Judah, all of the Judeans went through it, including faithful Judeans. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. God gives them the grace of captivity. But what does that grace look like? Ripped away from their homes and families, put into an indoctrination program for three years, castrated, right? Never get to go back home, never get to have families of their own. Does that seem gracious to you? But it was. Ezekiel has the grace of exile, but in exile, he suffers greatly in the context of his ministry. He's hated by his contemporaries to whom he is uh, sent to give the word of God. His wife dies in the context of his ministry. He has to press on. Does that seem gracious to you? But it was. And, And here, Jeremiah is going to face the destruction of Jerusalem and go through the experience of this judgment that in, in a way that's going to be very personal and very painful, and yet it is but the pains of childbirth. And if God's faithful people can see that, it will transform their approach to it. I want you to, to go to your study guide for just a minute. I'm going to just kind of take you through some of the overall structural highlights of this section. This will pertain not just to chapter 30, but to all four chapters, which I would encourage you to read you know, several times. I don't know if you're reading the book of Jeremiah regularly as we earlier counseled, but, but we'll be reading this section several times as we work our way through it over the next couple of weeks. 
Jeremiah's message, as we said, has largely focused upon judgment, and therefore most of it is negative. Now, I hope by this point in the book, and I've gotten some feedback about this, that I hope this is getting across to most, most everyone, Jeremiah's book could be very discouraging, but I hope by now you realize it's not. It's, it's actually very encouraging. But you have to approach it in the right way. You have to know what's going on. You have to be able to understand the judgment in the context of grace. The book of Consolation, though, it stands in sharp contrast. If you remember back at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, Jeremiah was sent to build and to plant as well as to pull up and tear down. You remember that in chapter 1 and verse 10? Well, the book of Consolation in many ways is the build and the plant section. This is the place where he is ultimately going to speak comfort to the people and say good news. Once God levels the ground... He's going to build something new and greater upon it. Notice, for example, in chapter 31 and verse 4, the Lord says, Again, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines, and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. I've been reading through Deuteronomy recently and just being struck again with the, the divine duty of rejoicing. You wouldn't expect to find that maybe in a a book of law, right? But it's all through Deuteronomy. It's like one of the recurring themes in the book, that God is giving you this law, He's bringing you into this place of blessing that you might rejoice before Him, that you might clap your hands, that you might sing with gladness, verse 7 of chapter 31, that you might rejoice and give thanks for the goodness of God. Notice again in chapter 31, verse 28, And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says Yahweh. This is what God is going to do. He's been very diligent about bringing judgment to his people. He will be just as diligent in watching over them for their restoration and blessing. Now, if you look at chapter 32 and also at chapter 33, you'll notice in chapter 32 and verse 2 and chapter 33 and verse 1 that the the setting of the book of Consolation, at least the latter part of it, is a, a time of imprisonment for Jeremiah. Chapter 32 begins in this way, The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the tenth year of Zedekiah king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, just pause there for a second. Remember that Zedekiah reigns eleven years. And in the 11th year of Zedekiah, Babylon takes the city. Zedekiah is the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And then the nation is destroyed. This is year 10 of Zedekiah's reign. What does that mean? We are inside the final year. right? The doom is imminent. Where is Jeremiah? Verse 2, For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison which was in the king of Judah's house. Zedekiah has arrested him. He's incarcerated at this time. You have five epistles in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul from prison. Possibly one other, but at least five that we know, right? Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy being written in the last imprison- during the last imprisonment of his life. A time of imprisonment has, has previously and, and since then been a productive time for God's preachers, right, when they can't go out and preach to the multitudes. I, I am guessing that maybe all of the book of Consolation is written during that period, but at least the last two chapters appear to be. In chapter 33 and verse 1, Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah a second time while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying what follows. This is where Jeremiah is, and this is where Judah and Jerusalem are. They are besieged. 
The Babylonian armies are outside of the walls at the time. The city will fall within the next year, perhaps in as little as just a few months after this prophecy is received. We also see that at least part of this vision comes to Jeremiah in the context of a dream while he is asleep. He refers to this in chapter 31 and verse 26. And so Jeremiah is in prison. The Babylonians are outside the walls. Zedekiah has hardened his heart against the word of the Lord, and destruction is imminent. And that is the moment when the night is darkest, when the situation seems most hopeless. That is the moment that God gives the most comforting prophecy in the entire course of Jeremiah's ministry. Isn't isn't that strange in some ways? And it's not encouraging because it says, Tomorrow the Babylonians are going to pack up and leave, and you're going to be released from prison, and Zedekiah is going to get saved, and everything's just going to be great. No, the city is going to be destroyed. Zedekiah is going to come to a bitter end, if you recall. And Jeremiah himself is going to face great suffering in the aftermath of the city's destruction. And yet it's in the worst moment of Judah's uh, history that the greatest comfort comes from the pen of this prophet. Jeremiah is given this message so that the people, not just in his generation, but in subsequent generations, might read and be encouraged by this same prophecy. Uh, One of the things that we've noticed before is that Jeremiah's uh, 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 written prophecies are circulated very quickly. In fact, one of the things that we haven't seen yet, although I've referred to it a couple of times, is that Jeremiah's prophecies are going to be circulated during his lifetime. In fact, fairly early during his ministry, because King Jehoiakim has a first edition copy of the book of Jeremiah, and he cuts it up with a penknife and burns the manuscript in the fire. And so even during Jeremiah's life, his work is being received as the word of God, as scripture uh, uh, guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This prophecy is going to be part of that, and it is intended for future generations. And in fact, this is the part of the book of Jeremiah, more than any other, that the rest of the Bible, and specifically the New Testament, looks back upon. I mean, the parts of Jeremiah that you're probably most familiar with, the parts that are quoted, for example, in Hebrews chapter 8, are all from this book of consolation. And that is because this section is by far the most messianic section in the entire book of Jeremiah. It's not to say the rest is not speaking about Christ, but these chapters, more than any other, are speaking explicitly about Christ. Chapters 30 and 31 speak about this restoration hope. And it's a restoration hope for Israel and Judah. What you see in chapter 30 that we already read is this alternating picture between judgment and hope. It's going to be like a a woman in labor giving birth to a child. There will be great pain and anguish, and that will be followed ultimately by great rejoicing. Chapter 31 continues on that same theme. Then in chapter 32, Jeremiah, while in prison, is told by the Lord to buy a field. To buy a field from his relative, the field at that point being located behind enemy lines. Remember, the city of Jerusalem is besieged by the Babylonians. The Babylonians have control of the countryside at this point. There is a field on the other side of their line in enemy-occupied territory, and the Lord says, Jeremiah, you need to buy that field. 
seems like a really bad time to make a real estate deal, right? <laughs> I, Lord, I'm in prison, the city is under siege, and that's already a part of the new Babylonian empire. I'm not even sure that a bill of sale is going to be valid here, right? <laughs> and, and, and yet, what is it? It's a down payment. It's a promise. That land doesn't belong to the Babylonians. That land is not going to remain with them forever. That land belongs to the Lord, and He is pleased to give it to His children. That's what that whole uh, experience of real estate, buying and selling, is about in chapter 32. It's a powerful way of making the point. It really, really is. And then chapter 33 contains further elaboration on, on kind of these same things. God is going to hurt His people, but then He will heal them. And when He heals them, He will bring back joy, He will bring back sacrifices, and he will raise up a branch of righteousness to rule over them. And that promise, that covenant promise that he has made with them is as certain as day and night. As sure as you can be that when the sun sets tonight, it's going to come up again tomorrow. So sure is God's promise that he will raise up a righteous king. And of course, that king is the Lord Jesus. Now, something that we've talked about already tonight and many, many times before, is the way in which the physical return to the land in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah served as a type of the greater spiritual return that God ultimately promised. And this is what we see in these chapters, and this is what we will meditate upon over the next couple of weeks. There is a greater spiritual restoration that's being anticipated. It's going to happen when David's heir sits upon the throne. Now, this is an important part of knowing when these prophecies are fulfilled because what do you not remember reading about in Ezra and Nehemiah? You don't remember reading about a king. Zerubbabel comes back and rebuilds the temple. Okay, good. We've got the priestly system set up once again. Ezra comes back and teaches people the law of God. Okay, we've got the kind of the pedagogical aspect national holiness, personal piety, okay, that things are coming together. Then Nehemiah comes back and rebuilds the walls of the city of Jerusalem and gets more people to move back into the city and take up residence there. Okay, good. The civil institutions are all being properly set up. He, he institutes a system of magistrates. He makes sure that the economy is regulated according to the law of God. He closes the doors of the city on the Sabbath. He threatens the merchants who try to do business on, on that holy day. So, so we've got the priestly, we've got the pedagogical, we've got the civil order all arranged. What is missing? If you're familiar with the Mosaic economy, if you're familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, if you're familiar with the rest of Israel's history, then you know what's missing. We, we not only need prophets and priests, what else do we need? We need a king. Throughout Israel's history, when there is not a king, you see the people suffering greatly. It's not to say that a king is the end of all ills, right? Sometimes the king is the illness, Right? Sometimes the king brings the pollution and the corruption. But think about it for a second. What does Israel have during the exodus and the wilderness wandering? They have a strong, central leader who is of the tribe of Judah and who is one of the greatest of all of the prophets. Do you realize that Moses is in, in one sense, right? A prophet, priest, and king. Right? He's a type of the prophet, priest, and king. Same way that Abraham was, by the way. He's a prophet, priest, and king. Same way that Job was. All the patriarchs, right? So Moses kind of stands between the patriarchal period 
and the kingdom period. And so it's not surprising that Moses is kind of a prophet, priest, and king character. And then we have the strong leadership of Joshua. Now we see him less in kind of a priestly role, but even there, what does he do? He organizes the army liturgically. He has the people marching around the city, praising the Lord. He, he is calling the people to uh, obedience to the law throughout the conquest of Canaan. But what happens after Joshua's retirement? We have decentralization. Now, as conservatives, we might think that political decentralization is a good thing, right? But in this case, it was a disastrous thing because that brings us into what period? The period of the judges, when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So now you know that that kind of an approach is biblical, right? It's biblical to everyone do what is right in their own eyes. Well, no, it's, it's awful. It's awful. It almost destroyed the nation, the period of the Judges is one of the darkest periods in Israel's history. And what does it associate that spiritual anarchy with? The lack of a strong leader. Well, the people come and they say to Samuel, we, we want a leader, we want a king like all of the nations. And God gives them the king that they want in the person of Saul. Now, Saul brings unity in some ways. Does he bring piety? No. Does he bring fidelity to the Lord and to his law? No. What we need is a king like David. A man after God's own heart. Ever after, David's sons are judged based upon how well they rule in relation to David himself. Right? You've read Chronicles, right? Second Chronicles is a history just of the southern kingdom, and every king of the southern kingdom is measured against David as the prototype. He is the first. He is the mold. He's the form. What is Jeremiah saying? What is Yahweh promising in these passages? He's promising that God's people are going to come back to the land and the nation is going to be reconstituted and led by, verse 9 of chapter 30, they shall serve Yahweh their God and David their king. Now what are we going to do? Are we going to resurrect David? I mean, he's been dead a long time. No, we're going to raise up the new and greater David. Who is that? When does that happen? It doesn't happen during the return from exile. You don't read that in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra, or Nehemiah. What the people need is a leader like David, like Moses, like Abraham. They need a strong prophet, priest, and king. They need the true prophet, priest, and king, right? The, the only one who can actually be a prophet, priest, and king. Because remember, once, once David is put on the throne, that whole prophet, priest, and king combination doesn't work anymore, right? Saul, for example, prior to David, but Saul tries to offer sacrifices when Samuel doesn't show up in 1 Samuel 13. In the allotted time, Saul tries to presume upon the priestly office, and what happens? God punishes him. David's descendant Uzziah tries to enter into the holy place and offer incense, presumes upon the priestly privileges. What happens? God strikes him with leprosy. So during the reign of David and his sons, that prophet, priest, and king, those, those offices are separated. But Christ is going to reunite them as we saw before, as in the days of the patriarchs, as we saw in the days of Moses, and much more than we saw even there. So you can know that this restoration is not just about the return to the land. And it's certainly not about the reconstitution of the state of Israel in 1948. Because it is associated with the rise of the king, David, who will sit upon a throne. And who is that? That's Jesus. That's Christ. 
That is what the announcements of Jesus' birth refer to in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. That is what the story of the Gospels is all about. The king that has, been co- has come to sit upon David's throne. That's what the message of the, of the, uh, the apostles in the book of Acts is all about. Uh, know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is the anointed one, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. That's the preaching of all of the apostles in their epistles. That is the message of the book of the Revelation. So Christ is David's son who ultimately comes to fulfill all of these promises. And these promises are fulfilled in him. Does that make sense? Are you kind of seeing how we, how we get there? So that means that everything that happens between the destruction of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day and the appearance of Jesus in the New Testament, everything that happens between, and there are a lot of things that happen, but it's all preparatory to the actual fulfillment. It's getting things ready. It's lining up the pieces, bringing the people back to the land. That's supposed to remind us that God is going to bring us back to himself, but he hasn't done it yet. That's why you have books like Haggai that says... I thought that God was going to bless us, but he's only given us a bag with holes in the bottom of it, right? We don't have the fullness. We don't have the glory that we expected. Haggai says, well, that's because the desire of the nations hasn't come yet. When the desire of the nations gets here, then you're going to see it. Who is the desire of the nations? The king that stands before. All right. Well, let's spend the last couple of minutes going through what we read in chapter 30. And we won't won't rush, but we're not going to linger either. We'll just go through as much of it as we can uh, before we run out of time tonight. Get down into the meat of the material, uh, starting in verse 5. Thus says Yahweh, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, and he shall be saved out of it. Again, one of the challenges in studying this passage is to remember two things. First of all, there's an immediate historical context and reference being made in these verses. You don't want to misunderstand that Jeremiah is talking about Judah's trouble, Judah's judgment, the Babylonian exile. That is what is in view here. But at the same time, you have to realize that the New Testament kind of expands this, amplifies this, broadens this out so that principally the same ideas can be applied to other kinds of sufferings that come upon God's people. You want to remember that these words are spoken to the people in Jeremiah's day, but they're preserved for the people of God in every generation thereafter. And so when you have this day of judgment and doom and disaster come upon you that seems sure to be the end of the world, God says, look more carefully. It's only the pains of childbirth, and I am going to save you out of it. God saves his people through judgment. He cannot and he will not save them in any other way. There's no other way to save the world than by bringing judgment upon it. And that includes the church. If it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God, Peter says rhetorically, what will the end of the unbeliever be? If the church is going to go through calamity like this, what will it mean for the rest of the unregenerate? It will be a judgment that they do not survive. It shall come to pass in that day, verse 8, says the Lord, that I will break his yoke from your neck, I will burst your bonds, foreigners shall no more enslave, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. 
On the other side of captivity, there is going to be freedom. On the other side of bondage, there is going to be liberty. But what, what has to happen for Jesus to be able to set the captives free? We're familiar with these prophecies from Jeremiah, from Isaiah. We see these prophecies quoted in the New Testament about Christ's work. But what has to happen for Jesus to be able to set the captives free? There first have to be captives. There first has to be some kind of captivity. There has to be bondage. You can't have an exodus unless God's people are in Egypt. You can't have Christ healing lepers, opening the eyes of the blind, giving strength to limbs that before could not carry weight unless previously there was infirmity. In many ways, the infirmities that God's people experience in this present age are setting up the greater deliverance that He will manifest in the work of His Son. That includes our sinfulness, that includes our weakness, our willfulness, our fearfulness, our anxieties. All of that is ultimately there to give us some context for experiencing and enjoying God's grace. You would not perceive the grace of God in an unfallen world in the same way that you do in this fallen world. You would not see the mercy of God if everything was just good and glorious and righteous and just as it ought to be. Human beings only see things by contrast. That's true physically, but I'm convinced that's also true cognitively and spiritually. You only see things by contrast. You're not aware of your breathing unless something begins to restrict your breathing, right? I mean, you could stop and think about the fact that you're breathing, try and slow your breathing down, but normally you're completely unaware of it until something restricts your breathing and then you become very aware of it, right? You're not aware of the beating of your heart until you start having heart palpitations and suddenly now you're very aware of it. We become aware of God's grace and mercy in the context of the suffering that we experience. And if you and I don't experience trouble, we're just not going to appreciate how good God truly is. Verse 10, Therefore do not fear, O my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. Well, the Lord only says that when there is something to fear. And yet these are some of the most familiar words that God says to His people. Some of the most frequent words in the Bible God addresses to His people, especially through angels, but also through the prophets, is do not be afraid. How often does Jesus have to tell His disciples, do not be afraid? But He says that because there is something to fear. And it is a frightening thing to look over the city wall and see the Babylonian army and know that we are besieged and that they've got the power to come in here. And Jeremiah keeps saying that they are going to come in here. And I want God's will to be for them to go away, but it's not going to be the case. God is telling the people they are going to come, and they are going to take you, and they are going to slaughter your neighbors. Don't be afraid. You will have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death, but you do not have to fear evil there because I am with you. He says, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. We talked last week in chapter 29 about this idea of a multi-generational hope, of, of building houses, planting gardens, marrying off your children, who will have children so that you can marry off their children, so that in the days of your grandchildren, somebody can go back home. Right? And, and you're to build and plant today in view of what's going to happen 100 years from now, and you're not going to physically see it. But you see it right now by faith. That's how people of faith live. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. It's about being able to see what is beyond your lifetime by faith and working during your lifetime toward that end. Well, that's the promise here. I will save you from afar 
and your seed from the land of their captivity. You are going to go into exile and you are not going to come back, but your children will. Your grandchildren will. And you have to not be afraid of what's about to happen. You have to know and trust that I'm working through it. That this is, this is not the devil getting the upper hand. This is not the Babylonians ultimately succeeding. This is the Lord setting them up. This is the Lord working through their wickedness and their violence for the greater good of His people and His greater glory. I am with you, says the Lord, verse 11, to save you. Though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. See, that's what we want. We want God just to, just to say, that wasn't a good decision, don't do that again, now we're done. That's what we want the Lord to do. Like, I would, I would just feel better if all of my sins, He would just say, that wasn't the right thing to do, try not to do that again, now let's just go on our way. But the Lord says, no, I mean, you've been an idolatrous people and an immoral people, and, and I'm not going to let this go unpunished, but I'm not going to destroy you. I am going to destroy them. The Assyrians cut down the forest. I'm going to cut them down. The Babylonians carry my people away. I'm going to carry them away. I will not make a complete end of you. I will make a complete end of them. The unbeliever will not survive. The church will. The church will. But God always saves through death and resurrection. As Chesterton reminds us, right, Christianity is the faith that has died many times and always come back out of the grave. It's because we serve a God of the resurrection. We serve a God who knows his way out of the grave. Well, that's, that's the image all through the Old Testament. It's the image all through the New Testament. Jesus says that the seed has to go into the ground and die in order to give birth to the plant and the harvest that we wait and long for. And so you have to trust God as you enter into that fiery crucible. Verse 12, your affliction is incurable, your wound is severe, there's no one to plead your cause. You see the alternation that we referred to earlier in chapter 30? Okay. Just pay attention to that, it bounces back and forth. There's no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up, you have no healing medicines, all your lovers have forgotten you, they do not seek you. That's the spiritual adultery that they are guilty of, which has included physical adultery, sexual immorality of various kinds. Their false gods are not coming to rescue them. The, the worldly friends that the prodigal uh, celebrated with away from his father's house, that, like where are they when he's in the pig pen, right? Where, are, are they helping him out? No, like uh, he's, he's out of money and they've moved on. But the Lord remembers them there. He says, I've wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? I have done these things to you, verse 15. But then he alternates and says, but now look at what I will do. Verse 16, therefore all those who devour you shall be devoured. All your adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. Those who prey upon you, I will make a prey. This is the lex talionis. This is the principle of justice. God will do to the enemies of his people as they have done to God's saints. That is what justice involves. It involves a comparable retribution, a just recompense for their wickedness. He says, verse 17, I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion. No one seeks her. No one cares. They've scoffed at the pathetic uh, people of God. But God will now come 
and be their vindicator. Verse 18, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound. The palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will glorify them and they shall not be small. A couple of things here real quickly. We talked about how can we know that this is fulfilled in the time of Christ. We gave several reasons. Most notably that this restoration is associated with the the appearance of the king. And we don't have that in the post-exilic period until Jesus comes along. But another thing that you can notice here is that God promises not only the return to the land, the rebuilding of the city, but the reconstitution of the temple and the association of sacrifice, thanksgiving, and rejoicing. And is that what you see in the New Testament? Like what I see is a circumcised Edomite calling himself the king of the Jews. A bunch of chief priests that are hypocrites, if I've ever seen one. A bunch of Jewish denominations that just cannot get along to save their lives, and they love their oral traditions, their rabbinical law, far and away more than they have ever loved God's Word. I see the courts of the temple being filled with merchants who are just basically turning the, the whole house of God into a flea market. Is this, is this what you see? No. What you ultimately see is that the joy that God promises has not come to the people of God until Jesus, the glory of God, comes there. So what house is being referred to? It's the house of God. It's the true house of God. It's not the temple that was rebuilt in Zerubbabel's day. It's not the temple that is renovated by Herod, the second temple that Jesus enters and then cleans out with a whip. It's the temple of God that is the church where the Spirit is pleased to dwell. God is making you into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And what does he say, verse 19? He says, I will multiply them and they will not diminish. What does that do to your conception of the church? I will glorify them and they shall not be small. How well does that align with kind of how you think about the church in the present age? You know, I I grew up in churches that, you know, sometimes explicitly, if always implicitly, felt that, you know, if a, if a church has got more than about 150 people in it, it's obviously liberal, right? <laughs> obviously, right? Because, because you couldn't have that many people in one church and, and actually be preaching the Word of God hard. You've probably been in some churches like that, right? Now, we might, we might not put it that way. I certainly hope we wouldn't, right? But, but even, in, even in the Reformed world, we could kind of sort of think that way. Say, well, we're not the only church, but... We're kind of almost the only church. (laughs) Not not really, but sort of. You know? The Lord says that He is going to rebuild this city, the New Jerusalem, this palace, the temple of God, and out of it will proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. That's why we sing psalms like clap your hands. That's why at the end of the hymns, you're supposed to say, Amen, right? That's why we lift up our hands to the Lord, the way the Scripture tells us to, and sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Him, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Because one of the things that God promises is that when He builds this house, and He rebuilds this city, and He restores His people, what you're going to hear is happiness, thanksgiving, merriment, God's people are not going to walk around looking like they were winged on a dill pickle. They're going to be excited about being saved. 
And they are going to be numerous. They're going to grow and not diminish. In other words, the trajectory is in one direction. I realize that doesn't mean that a small church is not a faithful church or that all large churches are obviously faithful churches. That's not the case. And it doesn't mean that in our particular corner of the kingdom, it might not seem to ebb and flow. Sometimes we grow, sometimes we shrink, sometimes it seems like things are on a positive upward trajectory, sometimes it seems like we're losing ground. That may be how it appears in our little foxhole. But here you've got to see the big picture, the big promise. And you've got to decide whether you believe God's word or not. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Are you going to believe how things feel, how things seem to you, what what your experience might seem to be? Or are you going to believe what God says? I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before, before me and I will punish all who oppress them. What are you afraid of? You are afraid of people, of men that dress up in women's clothes and insist that you celebrate their depravity? Seriously? You're afraid of, like, senile political leaders that don't know what day of the week it is? Like, you're afraid of this? No, no. God's people are supposed to be rejoicing and giving thanks and confident in the blessings of God, confident in the ultimate promises of God and their fulfillment. Their nobles shall be among them. Their governors shall come from their midst. I will cause him to draw near and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says Yahweh? You shall be my people and I will be your God. That's been the promise of the Abrahamic covenant all along. That's what God said to Abraham a long time ago. And he says that is going to be the defining experience of God's people in this restoration. By the way, that's going to be really important in chapter 31 in terms of interpreting some language about the new covenant that we'll come to next week. Behold, the whirlwind of Yahweh goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. Do you believe that? Not do you understand how that's going to work out. Do you understand, you know, exactly what to anticipate in that? I don't. I don't know how God's going to work that out. The question is, do you believe it? These promises are being fulfilled right now. They're being fulfilled in the context of the kingdom of God's Messiah. And you are a member of that kingdom. Do you believe these promises or not? God's whirlwind will fall violently on the head of the wicked. Period. Full stop. You don't have to be afraid of them anymore. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. Well, we began tonight where we end by reminding you that the New Testament says you're living in the latter days. These are the last days, right now. That's where you are. What are you supposed to do with this material? The Bible says you're supposed to meditate upon it. You're supposed to contemplate it. You're supposed to be thinking about it. You're supposed to think about how these promises relate to your present life and your experience as part of the people of God, as part of the body of Christ, as part of the New Jerusalem, as part of the temple of the Lord that has been rebuilt and filled with his glory, and from it comes thanksgiving and the voices of those who make merry because of God's grace. Amen.